Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say two things. First, unless anyone on Tatter says that they are speaking on behalf of any particular organization or group, you should assume that each person speaks for themselves and themselves alone. I always want to point that out to avoid misunderstanding. The second thing that I want to say is thank you. Thanks to each of you who offers financial support for Tatter through Patreon, but more generally, whether you do that or not, thanks for listening to this podcast. It means a lot to me. With all that said, let's get started. Here's Tatter. Well, has it I can do more damage on my laptop sitting in my pajamas before my first cup of Earl Grey than you can do in a year in the field? Oh, so why do you need me? Every now and then a trigger has to be pulled. Or not pulled. It's hard to know which in your pajamas. In the James Bond franchise, Q is useful without typically going into the field, but the success of MI6 still requires people. Agents such as 007 to go out and get dirty and take risks and face the wider world. The same is true in other domains, including politics. Some people have to go out and get dirty, at least metaphorically, and take risks and face the wider world. But some of us instead engage from home, at our laptops, perhaps literally in our pajamas, on Twitter and on Facebook, possibly signing online petitions. As useful as Q might be, for those of us who engage politically from the comfort of our homes, are we as useful as we think we are? This is the kind of question I discussed with Aton Hirsch, an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at Tufts University. As his website indicates, he studies civic participation, voting rights, and the relationship between election rules, strategies, and the behavior of voters. He's the author of the 2020 book, Politics is for Power, which was the basis of our conversation. And I now feature that conversation in this episode, which is titled, Engaging Power. I think I was drawn to political science because I didn't think I was uh, uh, a good person to be actually in politics. <laughs> so <laughs> after uh, I've always like since high school and definitely through college, I've always not like had a strong partisan bone in my body. I've been very always interested in politics and very committed to being politically active. But after college, I started like first I worked for a think tank. I worked for I did like a couple of political jobs and I like I just couldn't. I just, it wasn't a good fit for me because I really wasn't sufficiently ideological or something like that. So academia, especially political science felt like an opportunity for me to, to be engaged in politics, to learn and teach and, and be involved in some way without, um, you know, in, in in a way that felt comfortable for, you know, where I was personally in in my own politics. And the uh, publication of yours that, uh, caught my attention was your second book, which is titled Politics is for Power. And I'm about halfway through. Um, I just began reading it um, last week when I reached out to you and I've had time to finish. I haven't had time to finish, but uh, it's clear that 
uh, focus of the book is what you call political hobbyism. Can you, for listeners, tell them what political hobbyism is? Sure. It might be better actually to start with what politics is. Uh, okay, so, fair enough. You know, when, when I think, and I think what political scientists think about engaging in politics, you know, a definition we might put to that is, you know, something like um, if you are engaged in politics, you're working in, with others uh, with some kind of goals and strategies to influence the government. So you might influence the government by getting other people to vote the way you want to vote. You might influence the government by lobbying politicians. But no matter what, you're, you're working with some, some group of people with some goals and strategies to influence, to influence the government. And the thing that I just described like, just doesn't describe how 90% of people or so who think they're engaged in politics are doing it. So what are they doing? I call it hobbyism. You know, they are doing something that's more for satisfying their own intellectual interests, learning interesting, cool facts. Um, they're satisfying an emotional need for a, a connection. Um, but they're doing something for them not to get power for ideas uh, or not to get power for serving the community that they are a part of. Um, so uh, when I say political hobbyism, I mean the obsessive news consumption, arguing about news, sharing news, you know, being an amateur pundit about the news, um, taking token actions like uh, signing an online petition, uh, all that together. So what, what some people call slacktivism, which is like these kind of token activism activities, plus the all the worrying and news consumption, all that stuff that seems like political engagement, but is actually more like uh, kind of following sports or some kind of fandom, some kind of hobby than it is uh, the acquisition of political power. Someone like, say, me, who spends a lot of time, too much time on Twitter following political posts, making political posts, spends too much time on Facebook engaging in uh, debates there, but not actually volunteering in my local Democratic uh, Party, even though I am identified uh, as a Democrat, not actually pounding the pavement and canvassing. Am I right that I've just described the political ho- a political hobbyist? Right, exactly. Yeah, all that time on social media, that is look, looks a lot like a leisure activity. You're not really working with others with any goals and strategies to influence the government. You're doing something for your own curiosity or to feel connected to things that are important and 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 troubling, but you're not doing anything in terms of moving the ball forward. So that I would say is definitely political hobbyism. And are you suggesting in the book that spending one's time doing that rather than canvassing, rather than volunteering with uh, a local political organization, that that, that comes at a cost uh, as one attempts to uh, realize one's political goals? Yeah. So I think there is, at, at, at the basic level, I think there is actually some confusion about this. Like, I think people who say they're engaged in politics, they often mean they're engaged in following politics, like they're not doing anything. Um, and so it's not like I want to judge. Well, I mean, it's not necessarily that I want to judge people's leisure activities, but yeah. there is this like weird thing that's happening, which is, you know, if you're following, you know, uh, a sports center obsessively and listening to sports talk radio and learning, you know, every detail about uh Tom Brady leaving the Patriots and, you know, like you don't, you're not going to be confused that you're a football player, right? <laughs> right? Like, but in politics, I think there is this widespread confusion that 
um, the thing that you are supposed to do as a citizen is essentially like the equivalent of obsessing over a sports center. So it, there are different things. And the, and the first thing, hobbyism is not going to do anything for your side. It's not going to help achieve your goals. And so the term hobbyism is pretty, a lot of people find it insulting at first. Um, I, I hope, I hope if you started, as you started to read the book that, uh, that you feel like the tone of the book is not insulting. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. more like bringing people, bringing people along. But the initial term is insulting because people who spend a lot of time on politics tend to feel like this is really important and, and they're not doing it because they love doing it. They feel like they, they have to do it. But I think if they actually take a moment to honestly reflect at what they do, which is, you know, what the book is helping them do, it, it doesn't amount to much. And I think there's, you know, there's really this big gap for most of us between the, um, our stated interest and concern about politics and, and how we spend our time. So when you think about the kinds of people who tend to be more likely to engage in hobbyism versus canvassing, uh, attending, uh, and otherwise engaging with, uh, say, political groups in their communities, who are those people? So, for example, uh, is one of those sets of people more likely to be college-educated? Yeah, so so both the actual uh, engaged people and the hobbyists are are much more likely to be college educated than people who don't pay attention to politics at all. Okay. Um, but you know, basically, m- this huge pop like oh, most you know, so you might think that college educated people who have some free time who tend to say like that politics is important, that they're, you know, afraid of what's going on in the country, you know, you might expect them to be more involved. And in previous generations, they were really involved. And for the most part, they've, they've really kind of, uh, they're sitting on the sidelines and mostly doing hobbyism. You do see, though, that, like, it's not just that uh, the activists are a subset of hobbyists. In some ways, you see like very different demographic patterns. And the, the clearest ones are with gender and with race. Okay. So. Um, so, so like I said before, college educated people are, are likely to be activists, but we're talking about a tiny fraction of them who are actually engaged in the community in, in real volunteerism. Uh, most of them are not. But if you look at gender, so like most people who, who, the people who are spending the most time on hobbyism, that is the most, the people who say they spend the most hours following political news, the people on a survey who could like answer the most factual questions like the most trivia questions about politics those are those are predominantly men you know it's something like um off the top of my head something like you know if i were to say like the people who spend an hour or two a day on politics like those are the hobbyists if they don't do anything like something like 55 percent of them are men but it's like the people who say they're volunteering it's like two-thirds women and you can really see this if you you know go to just about any um like group that's popped up on the left since the trump election you know indivisible groups i mean i don't think i've been to a any kind of group like that around the country that wasn't about two thirds women. And that's what, you know, other scholars who are looking at this, they, they, they basically find the same thing. The racial pattern is also pretty dramatic, which is that uh, whites, white Americans spend more time on political hobbyism. Again, they learn more facts. They spend 
more time consuming the news than African-Americans, Latinos. But uh, not just this year, really since the 2008 election, you could see in, in data that African-Americans are much more likely to participate in voluntary, you know, in real politics, volunteering for organizations, doing canvassing, things like that. Uh, you see it in, in, in data from 2008, 2012, but even more in 2016 and after. So you have basically African-Americans and increasingly Latinos spending less overall time in political like news engagement, but much more of their time is dedicated to volunteerism and, and power building. So then do you think of political hobbyism as a kind of uh, luxury enjoyed by those who either say by virtue of uh, their gender as a man or by virtue of their race uh, being white is political hobbyism a luxury enjoyed by those who are relatively well placed in society and perhaps uh, insulated from some of the uh, downsides of uh, uh, say, certain policies that might disadvantage uh, either women or minorities. For sure. Yeah, that's a big argument in the book. It's actually, it comes later. It's around chapter 20 where we get into this. Um, but that's exactly right. That uh, um, Over time, I think as we've seen, you know, for college-educated white Americans, like, uh, things are going pretty well. Uh, they have mm-hmm. jobs. There hasn't been military conscription for, like, 50 years. Um, and uh, they might be comfortable enough in many cases, particularly men, uh, they feel comfortable enough with the status quo that they have the luxury of treating politics more like a, a leisure activity than, than a necessary path to, to empowering their communities and things they care about. Um, I think, you know, when you see after 2016, a huge number of women engage in, um, in volunteerism and protest and running for office uh, and, you know, I think many of them said it's a direct response to feeling threatened by the status quo. Uh, and, and you know, um, among minority groups, you see this, the same thing. I mean, I think that's been more persistent. And I think, you know, the, the, um, this relationship between kind of serving your own community, empowering your own community and political engagement is it's something that comes from feeling like your community needs more political power to, 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 to get what they need in the world. And, and so I think you see that um, less among college-educated white men than you see it among other, other demographics. One of the things that I really have enjoyed about your book thus far is that you interweave data with narrative and you you tell the stories of individuals who in many cases are not engaged in anything that could be characterized as slacktivism or a, a shallow kind of hobbyism and one of the first ones perhaps the first one is uh Dave Fleischer can you talk about Dave Fleischer and, and about what deep canvassing, which he is engaged in, what deep canvassing is? Yeah, sure. Let me just say that I think that, you know, you're pointing to the fact that, you know, I think the the, the book, A Story of Political Hobbyism is a real bummer if it's just <laughs> like why well, we're all doing this pathetic wrong thing. And, and so I really did want to prioritize weaving in stories of people who 
um, are they're accessible people. Like they're people who you might see yourself in sort of, but like they're, they just don't do politics the way most of us do it. And, 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 uh, and so I think they really are showcasing different ways to do this. So the story of Dave Fleischer is the story of, of Lisa, this woman in, um, in Brooklyn who, uh, the, the story starts with her and she's, mm-hmm. um, she was someone who was ups- someone who was upset about the Trump election, wanted to do something and she wasn't sure what to do. She started to do some like kind of tr- protests after the 2016 election. That didn't really feel right to her. And she finally learned about this organization that was engaging in this, this strategy called deep canvassing and deep canvassing is this idea that Dave Fleischer, who you mentioned um, kind of invented. And the idea was basically you, uh, instead of regular canvassing, a lot of people have either been the recipient of a canvasser or maybe have tried it themselves and know that it's a very awkward thing. You basically go to the house of a stranger and uh, have like this 30 second script that you tell them that they should vote or who they should vote for. And it's somewhat effective at increasing turnout. It's not really effective at persuasion. And Fleischer discovered a way to do persuasion well. Um, and and he he did this because he was really concerned about LGBT issues. He's a, in his sixties, gay man from California and um, uh, California, like a lot of States had passed laws, ballot initiatives against gay marriage. He wanted to kind of figure out, well, who are these people that were voting against gay marriage? And he started going to the houses of people who he expected were voting uh, against gay marriage. And he basically said like, let, let, like, here's, hi, I'm basically, you know, here's my story. What's your story? What, what, where do you come from on this issue? And it turned out a lot of people who are against gay marriage or on the other side of an issue from you or the election from you are not like a caricature of a angry opposition that you might imagine. It's not like, you know, he's going to every door as like a Fox News person who knows exactly all the talking points to say and get into an argument. He never gets in. Dave never gets into arguments. He basically uh, goes to people's houses, most of whom haven't thought through these issues with great care. And he treats these people with, with the utmost respect. He doesn't try to convince them of anything. He never gets into an argument. He basically speaks from the heart about where he's coming from on some issue and invites them to do the same. And a lot of them are basically act, given the opportunity for the first time to speak from their heart about where they come from. And some of them move and move permanently towards his direction. So Dave has been sort of the guru of this strategy and he's, and, and, and there's organizations that have popped up like this group changing the conversation together, which is out of New York. And so the stories of this group that went from Brooklyn where they're based this like liberal area of New York, they went over to Staten Island like several times a week, which is a conservative area of New York. And they had these really moving inspiring conversations with people on the other side. I can imagine that any listeners who follow coverage of research in political science may have the sense that some number of years ago, they heard about a study testing the efficacy of deep canvassing, where it later came to light that uh, one of the researchers had fabricated the data. And so they might think, there's no evidence to actually support this idea that deep canvassing can be persuasive. What would you say to them? Yeah, so it's one of the most awkward scandals in political science. It's true <laughs> that the first the, the first studies of this was fabricated by a researcher, and uh, of course the reason the the way that that was caught was because other researchers wanted to replicate the analysis, and when they started digging into the data 
that was collected the first time they they found all these irregularities but they still they went they went ahead and, and once they discovered the irregularities and the scandal broke they redid the similar kind of analysis <laughs> like uh, legitimately and they've actually and other people have done it over and over again and they consistently see these effects that there are really long lasting positive persuasive effects uh in different contexts you know, like the first you know I, I think the first study was about I think it was about LGBT rights, but they've done it with trans. They've done it with uh, uh, with abortion rights. They've tried it with all these different uh, these different things. I mean, there's still a long way to go in measurement, just like with anything. But um, the conversations are effective. You know, their their um, deep canvassing, as you might imagine, is like hard to scale. Like it's not <laughs> you're like you have to train volunteers to do this, and then in a whole day, you know, one of these volunteers might have one or two great, meaningful, transformational conversations. And a lot of people look at that and are like, what a waste. You know, I spent a whole day uh, talking to people and I had one or two great conversations. Like, how am I ever going to change an election, national election? And, you know, a big part of my book is helping people reorient themselves away from a paradigm in which they are like minuscule drops in the bucket uh, with have they have no power to influence election to thinking the way that Dave and and Lisa and all these people think about, which is like, I start with my own vote, which is just one vote that I'm entitled to. And if I move two people, like I've now I have three votes. And, um, and, you know, that really is how power for any cause is built by multiplying the, the power of one's own vote. So, you know, people like Dave and Lisa, they don't think about this as like, uh, a waste of time like how could they when they've just tripled or quadrupled or you know there are stories in the book of people who who have earned the trust of a thousand voters and move a thousand voters you know uh that doesn't seem like a, a waste of time when you when you take the perspective of uh of what an individual can do so even though i by my own pragmatic uh temperament for lack of a better way of uh characterizing it find the arguments you offer for deep canvassing compelling, I can imagine some uh, critiques, and maybe you even address these in the parts of the book that I've not gotten to, but I want to discuss at least one or two with you. And one critique, sure. that, comes to, one, one critique that comes to mind, I would characterize as a kind of uh, uh, normative uh, critique, where here the idea is that it should not be the responsibility of some say members of historic of historically stigmatized or oppressed groups to have to engage in something like deep deep canvassing to convince uh, people who don't just disagree with them but in their disagreement question their fundamental human rights and dignity. So, for example, if I'm a gay man, the argument might be it shouldn't be incumbent upon me to do the kind of work that Dave is doing to humanize myself to people who. Uh, are dismissive of LGBTQ uh, rights. If anything, it should be the responsibility of other straight allies to do that work. Uh, what's your response to that critique? Yeah, well, I would say power building is not uh, only about persuasion or moving to the other side. Uh, half the stories in the book are about uh, building power within one's own community. So, you know, the story you have read already that about the, the elderly uh, Russian man who mobilized his own community, that wasn't about persuasion to anyone. That's about building 
power by getting your people to vote and vote in the same way. Later in the book, you'll encounter this woman, Kiris Matias, who is a uh, Dominican immigrant, um, lives in Massachusetts in this town called Haverhill. Yep. Um, and uh, her, so the, the town is about 20% Latino, but it's, there's, there's like a Puerto Rican group. There's a Dominican group. They had never been together for Kiris, who is, she's like not a professional. She's a, a school bus monitor for a, a special needs school. She has built this Latino coalition in the evenings. And there's honestly almost no, you know, they're not, they're not, they're not, um, I mean, they're making, they're, they're bridging divides within the Latino community. Like, you know, the, the Puerto Ricans go to the evangelical churches, the Dominicans to the Catholic church. There's plenty of, there's plenty of persuasion happening, but, but um, to, to build this community together, but really what that community is, it's about being able to articulate what the core needs are and to understand the politics of building a coalition of people who are all willing to, to advocate and vote the same way. So I would say like half the stories are of that flavor in the book of, not building bridges, but but just getting power internally for a community. Um, is that responsive to, to your question? Yeah, I, I think in part it is. But if, if I mean, if I were going to respond, and, and I'll hear, I'll, I'll share my response and invite you to tell me what you think of it. I would both endorse what you said, but also note that depending on the size of one's community and how small it is, and thus to put it in crass terms how few votes you might have, even if you can actually mobilize the entire community, building bridges may be necessary, as distasteful as it might be to engage with people who initially reject your positions, perhaps even reject your humanity. Building a coalition that includes them um, may require that kind of difficult bridge building work. And if you can do that and get more of them on your side, you're, you're building more power that way. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, so I think it's right. So it's not either, or, I mean, I think for different people, depending on what community they're in, um, the path is different. You know, I think that the group in rural Pennsylvania that I talk about in the, in the book. So this is a, a very conservative blue collar area of Pennsylvania. And in this area, there's formed this very successful progressive organization called the voice of Westmoreland. And um, in that community, like th- that that's popped up around this, this organization, there's actually a shocking amount of diversity. Like, you know, when I went down to one of the meetings, a few African Americans and a few Latinos, but this is in a county that's like 98% white, right? So like, it's, it's very uh, diverse given that community. And um, they've managed to both be, you know, welcoming and prioritizing of the issues of um, uh, of immigrants, of African-Americans in their community, while also like their main job is really to try to move a lot of these blue collar white Trump voters towards their direction. So I don't know. It doesn't strike me as an either or uh, situation um, in, in communities like Haverhill, where you know organizing, deep organizing of of the Latino community, which is twenty percent of the uh, of the citizens, but not maybe of the you know of the voters. That seems to be a good strategy for that community there. But in a community that's one percent Latino, you know that coalition is not going to happen. So it's going to happen is it's going to be more more bridge building. Yep. Yep. 
And going to that community in Pennsylvania that you mentioned early in the book, um, and I told you that this story really moved me. You tell, you told the story of this uh, progressive group that has organized one evening, and there's um, a man who is sitting at the very, very back of the room. And here I'm just going to quote from you. Um, uh, the organizer asks all at the table to introduce themselves. When his turn, uh, the man, uh, comes, the man says he's a Republican and a Christian, as well as the father of a child serving in the military. He also says he's pro-life. Uh, you go on to say a couple of people shift in their seats, unsure where this introduction is going, worried that this rare hour in which they are surrounded by fellow liberals is about to be disrupted. The, the man continues almost mournfully, and he says, I'm a Christian, and there's no such thing as a racist Christian. That's why he's here, he explains. He feels that his own small community is going down a path of hatred. And by the way, this is in the wake of uh, Trump's election. Uh, and as a Christian, he needs to take a stand. Even though he disagrees with the other people in this room, issue by issue, he says he's here to learn about this group and maybe to contribute to its work. He's here because Donald Trump doesn't represent his Christian values. He offers advice about how the group can better approach people who are like him. He remains visibly uncomfortable through the whole meeting, but the group, the group is glad he came. They welcome him. He has traveled a long political distance to be here this night. And so that story moved me, but it also raises a question for me. And that is, if you're going to try to do that kind of bridge building, I wonder if you have any thoughts on how you find people like him who are on the other side, but are more open to engagement than many of the people whom you can imagine uh, belong to the same political party, belong to the same faith, who are not at all open to engagement. Do you just canvas randomly and hope you stumble upon them? Do you wait for them as he did to come to you? Or is there some other way that might allow you to more efficiently find those folks on the other side who are open to engagement? Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah, and this guy's uh, amazing. He's he's. I've been in touch with him actually actually since then. I was at his table, and you know, mm. for 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 listeners who um, maybe live in a blue bubble, you know, to go down to a place like this and be in, you know, you know, I, I mentioned the book, but you know, when some of these people go canvassing, like they, you know, from time to time they've like worn Kevlar vests. They are so afraid of who they're going to encounter in the door, and you know, this place really, it does feel strange for someone who, for me, lives in Boston to, to be in this place where this progressive community is meeting, but in this county that, you know, nearly everyone voted for Trump. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of animosity. And so sitting in this room, it was like, this, this, this guy walks in and, you know, I, I'm sitting at his table and, and I, you know, and, and people are like, you know, is this, is this guy going to protest our group? Is he, why, why is he here? And then, yeah, he, he, he has this like, he, he, he's there because he, he feels like he needs to be there. And over time, actually, he's been canvassing for, you know, this guy voted for Trump. He's, he's never voted for a Democrat. And then, and then, you know, by 2018, he's like with a clipboard knocking on doors um, for Democratic candidates up and down the ballot. And more important than him talking to strangers at the door, you know, he's convinced members of his own family to, to switch how they voted. Like that's, you know, this, of his own, of his own religious community. So um, it's really an amazing story. And the way he found them was not that he happened on a meeting. It's that 
this group is out in the community. They are doing um, uh, protests or rallies. And the feel of these protests or rallies are not like um, a bunch of, you know, far left or far right, you know, people shouting. It's more, you know, they have, vid- they had a vigil when this is about an hour away from Pittsburgh. This group had, this group was the only group in town in this whole County that did a vigil after the Pittsburgh synagogue shooting. They did a vigil for, uh, for immigrant rights. And the leaders of this group are, are people who come from the community. They're, they're, you know, um, they're moms, they're workers. And, they're, 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 and, and they are, they're conveying a very welcoming vibe. I mean, even the name of their group, Voice of Westmoreland, was chosen because they didn't want it to be called like resist Trump or screw Trump or it's not like that. The, the, everything about the group is designed to be, to be welcoming to so, people so, so, like so, him. So just to be clear, Voices of Westmoreland, it's an acronym. It, it stands for VOW. Right. Or vow, yeah, right. It's uh, right. That's right. Uh, they, they call oh, it I, I only mentioned that because I thought, if I recall correctly, you thought that in addition to the benefit of avoiding terms like resistance that might uh, alienate some of those folks, the notion of a vow that with, this, with its connotations of the sacred might actually also be appealing. Or am I imagining that? That's right. Yes, that's right. Actually, I don't think I put it that way in the book, but now that you say it, I think that that's probably true. It probably does reflect <laughs> what, what the, <laughs> that was probably purposeful. Yeah. But, you know, it was not called hashtag resist Trump or whatever. I think if it was, this guy never would have come. And if it was led by someone, and, and by the way, it's not just about their, their, it's not just about how they conveyed themselves publicly. You know, what a group like this does when they see someone like him show up, maybe first stand in the back quietly, um, is then they go and have coffee with him and say, oh, can we talk? You know, um, and, and, and they recruit, you know, this is what, organizing is all about about helping individuals like him um get on a path of of political engagement and you can't do that unless you're a welcoming to people from different backgrounds and be like really attentive to them attentive to them you know like what what's going to make this person click and i may be confusing stories but is this also the group that uh helped or at least worked in support of and perhaps uh, helped with the election of, is it uh, Connor Lamb? Right. So this group starts, this group forms right after the 2016 election and they start, you know, they start organizing, they start, they start some protests. The protests are really designed for recruiting new people uh, because, you know, like it's hard for, for a liberal group to be visible in this kind of community. And then this big opportunity drops in their lap, which is that there's a, a big scandal um, with the Republican incumbent member of Congress from this area of Pennsylvania, he he has to resign, and um, and so then there's this special election, and so this is an you know in, a, in an overwhelmingly Trump area, and so Connor Lamb's a Democrat, and this was like one of these first special elections after the 2016 election where groups like Voice of Westmoreland um, were active in a in a new way, and so this district that was I don't know what it was 20 percent pro. Republican previously, you know, the Democrat won by, it was like a few hundred votes Connor Lamb won by. And yeah, this group was part of it. So uh, that, matter of fact, I, I just have to say, I just have to say that, that later, like maybe last year, I ran into Connor Lamb at this event I was at. And, uh, and I asked him if he happened to know 
Angela, this volunteer leader in Westmoreland County. Um, you know, Connor Lamb says, of course, you know, we know Angela. She's, she was a big help in our election. And, you know, for me, it was just like, it was amazing that this member really did know um, this volunteer who had been, uh, you know, who had been mobilized by the Trump election and then started this really amazing organization. And so even though that is arguably that organization success is and it's an end of one, it's anecdotal evidence, it's arguably still evidence of the fact that or evidence for the idea that this kind of deep canvassing isn't just a kind of Pollyanna-ish kumbaya that has no impact, but can actually facilitate progressives building coalitions that enhance their power. Uh, am, am I reading that correctly? Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't even think that what they're doing, I would call deep canvassing. I think deep canvassing is sort of a subset of a general strategy, which is the the idea that, uh, you know, Hari Han is a professor at now at Johns Hopkins, she calls relational organizing of like, taking human beings seriously and building power one voter at a time. And again, some of that is not like, getting getting that person on the other side to all of a sudden have a, a miraculous epiphany um as you know as maybe this guy in in pennsylvania did a lot of it is just getting people organized who already have similar views but you know never had a mission before uh never had a goal no one ever said to them that hey you know actually organizing in our county uh for local offices and for state offices is worth our time, like that we should care about a state legislative race. So a lot of it is, I wouldn't say is, is kumbaya stuff. It's just, uh, you know, I think uh, follows a, a long line of, 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 of evidence, um, both quantitative and qualitative, that, yeah, collective action does actually work when you can do it. So one of the other things that I noted in reading about Angela was um, – uh, she had a background, if I'm correct, uh, in Wisconsin, including actually being involved somewhat reluctantly in some protest uh, activity. Am I recalling correctly? That's right. Yeah. And you talk not only in that context, but more generally about two functions that protests can serve, um, strategic on the one hand, but cathartic uh, on the other can you talk a bit about the distinction between those two functions and talk a bit about the efficacy of protests that is either one or the other uh, or perhaps both? Sure. Yeah. Angela really helped me understand protests. I mean, I would say like not as a researcher, but as a person, I was like, I've never been, I, I think I've always like taken a skeptical eye towards protests, or at least I would never personally feel like, like I would want to be in a protest. <laughs> And Angela has this strange combination of really kind of being quite critical of some protests. So she was part of these protests against Scott Walker in Wisconsin. And she talks about them like, what a waste of time. And she, she talks about the women's march. Like, this is like, you know, what are these people doing with their, with their, you know, snarky signs at the same time, she's actively engaged in protests all the time. (laughs) Um, And so she says basically that a lot of protests aren't strategic. And so if you think about a protest that's just sort of organized on Facebook quickly or something like that, where the goal is to blow off steam, to have this kind of temporary feeling of, of community or solidarity, and that's the end of it, then that's a protest that's focused on 
catharsis, like making yourself feel some relief. But protests are really supposed to be strategic. And so for Angela, a lot of times the strategy is recruiting members. Like if she and a small group stand outside in downtown Greensburg, Pennsylvania, then maybe some other people will see them and say like, oh, I didn't know this group existed. Sign me up. Sometimes protests are, of course, to raise awareness for an issue, and that's the strategy. Um, but, um, but, you know, oftentimes it's about recruitment. It's about getting something started, you know. And so I think when we look at the range of protests we see, you know, we've seen um, immigrant rights protests. We've seen Black Lives Matter protests. We've seen the Women's March. I think a lot of them fall on this kind of spectrum between cathartic and strategic and, you know, from the, from the perspective of the goals of any movement, you know, you want them to be strategic. So one of the things that I've seen in the wake of Bernie Sanders' decision to end his campaign uh, and even more recently, as recently as yesterday, to uh, endorse uh, Joe Biden's uh, uh, campaign, is I've seen supporters, particularly very strong supporters of Bernie Sanders, say that Biden is doomed to fail because Biden is not going to excite enough of the progressive base to win in the fall general election. And the implication seems to be that, at least for some voters, excitement is necessary for them to support um, a candidate. So if they're not excited, um, even if that candidate arguably would be better for their interests than uh, the opponent, or at least less hostile to their interests uh, than the opponent, they will not support him. I wonder if on the basis of any of your work, including the work in this book, you have any thoughts for that perspective that excitement is necessary for support? Yeah. So, I mean, I think that we've made, we've made politics and by we, I mean the country and the political parties through reforms of various kinds that I get into in the book have really disempowered community organizations and local political parties and empowered a form of politics that has ebbs and flows related to excitement and celebrity. You know, the, the kind of organizations that you and I have been talking about, Angela's organization, uh, Lisa's organization, because the people who are engaged in those organizations um, care about each other and are in it together, it, it doesn't matter that much who the celebrity at the top of the ballot is. They're going to do it no matter what because they're going to they're gonna convince people to vote uh, based on their own reputations and the trust they've built, not based on who the candidate is. But if you look at elections not just with our current celebrity in office, Donald Trump. But if you look at what happened with the Obama years, I think it's very instructive. When Obama was on the ballot, uh, people were excited about his campaign. They sent around YouTube videos of you know, ce- celebrities singing, yes, we can. People were all jazzed up about it. And then basically the second that the Democrats took over the White House, both houses of Congress with massive majorities, and there was actually an opportunity to, to engage in a legislative agenda, all of a sudden it was boring and you couldn't get people to, well, you certainly couldn't get people to a town hall meeting about healthcare, which was his signature uh, policy, but you couldn't get folks to vote in the midterm election in 2010, right? We had 
turnout among uh, something like voters under 30 made up like 18% of the electorate in 2008 and down to like 10% electorate in 2010. And so I think we are in this world that we have these cycles of, of engagement or a lack of engagement because of, of um, kind of dreamy celebrity candidates. And, and so what I would say is that people have different roles to play and for an individual citizen who's uh, I take to be the audience for my book, you know, the goal is to not get wrapped up in that and to do your part, you know, to engage in the political process and build power for things you care about. What the, the job of the, the parties are to engage voters when their candidates are maybe not as exciting as they'd hoped for. That's a, that's, that's for a different book, I think. <laughs> That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Aton Hirsch for taking the time to talk with me. For more information on him and the ideas we discussed and his book, Politics is for Power, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find the page for this episode where there are links with more information. As always, to provide feedback on this or any other episode of Tatter, you can mention Tatter on Twitter using the handle at tatter underscore rags, or you can go to Apple Podcasts and post a rating or a review or both. No matter what, I'll be grateful for any feedback that you provide. In any case, thanks for listening, and be well. <laughs>